0: This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent... Major Major Garrett. Yes, CBS? Yes, I Major Garrett. Major, that's
3: nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes.
2: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program known as The Takeout. Politics, policy, pop culture... Thanks for joining us, however you find us, podcast platform, CBSN, great radio stations around the country, including Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124. So we're going to have a conversation this week about something you don't often encounter in Washington, D.C., bipartisan cooperation on an issue that matters to the country, matters to the White House, matters to Congress. Our two guests are Democrat from Texas, Henry Cuellar. He represents the 28th District, Laredo, and surrounding areas. John Katko is our other guest, Republican, 24th District of New York. That's Syracuse and surrounding areas. Congressman, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So they're going to be with us together. There'll be a little bit of a time delay, but we'll weave that out. We're doing all this via Zoom. I'm in my office. The reason I'm in my office and not in my home in my dining room, which if you are watching on CBSN, you're accustomed to seeing, is this week I'm the uh, bulletin news anchor for CBS, which means I've got to be in my office in case any news breaks. So in the next hour, if something really big happens, I may have to scoot out the door and run to the anchor desk. If not, I'll be with you for the next hour. So before we get to immigration, which I know you both want to talk about, I first want to get in order... Congressman Cuellar, then Congressman Katko, your reaction to the Derek Chauvin trial verdict and what you believe it will or will not do in terms of Washington dealing with federal police reform legislation. Congressman Cuellar, go ahead. Go first. Yeah, You know,
1: I'm I'm a big believer in the uh, legal system and, you know, we got to let the legal system work like it happened here. Uh, In this case, it was the jury uh, that made the uh, decided on the verdict. What we do up here in Washington is we got to make sure we don't look at any extremes like stop the funding of police. I don't believe in that. And we got to look at the reform and do it in a thoughtful way. Because, look, I got three brothers that are peace officers, including one that's a border, uh, uh, he's a sheriff right now in Webb County, uh, Martin. So I know the work that they do. Uh, It's a very important role. And when you look at the role of our law enforcement, our society wouldn't be able to function without law and order. So we've got to support uh, the, uh, our men and women uh, that are uniform, uh, the law enforcement. Uh, and if we do some uh, reform, it's got to be very thoughtful. Uh, and at the same time, keep in mind that the legal system uh, will take care of any bad apples that might be in the system itself. So I appreciate that question.
2: Uh, Congressman Catcall.
3: Well, Marshall, first of all, since you're doing the bulletins this week for CBS News. Perhaps you could have have uh, Henry and I on because we actually are a uh, Democrat and Republican that get along and work together. That in and of itself is news, I think. But uh, as far as uh,
2: <laughs> kind of newsworthy, that's why you're here. Yes. <laughs> I, uh,
3: as, far, as far as your question, I, I was a federal organized crime prosecutor for 20 years before I came to Congress. Yes. And so I tried a lot of jury cases, and it's always amazed me how you could take 12 people from society, uh, don't know each other randomly put him in a jury box, and then ask him to deal with this evidence and, and, and get it right. And once again, they proved to us that this system works. They got it right. The evidence was overwhelming, and it was, and it was definitely the right verdict, and it was done in the right way. Uh, what this means long term for, uh, for the country, I think, first of all, it reinforces people's belief in the justice system, which was amazing. I, I talked to several minorities, uh, African-Americans, Hispanics, who didn't think that there was going to be a conviction. And uh, I was really amazed by that. And so for them to have that reaffirmation of our system, that's a great thing. Uh, Going forward, I've been working with a group called the Problem Solvers Caucus, which I'm a member of, uh, 28 Republicans, 28 Democrats. And I'm chair of the subcommittee, uh, not chair, I'm working with a a number of individuals, uh, including the Congressional Black Caucus to come up with a police reform bill. And we're making a substantial amount of progress. And I'm very excited about the prospects of working with the Senate. And we've been doing that all the way along with Tim Scott and others. And I think something's going to happen, and I think something very productive is going to happen, and come from it.
2: Do the two of you support the George Floyd Police Reform Act? Well, I, I, I can tell you there are some
1: adjustments that I think we need to do. I do support it, but we need to make some adjustments. Uh, for example, on the qualified immunity, you know, we gotta get that right uh, because, again, you know, knowing the work that the law enforcement officials uh, work, we gotta make sure that that qualified by immunity is done. So I'm one of those that I think, I mean, without a doubt, I, I do support it, but we do need to make some adjustments. And I know that uh, that is one that I want to see And Congressman, I'm,
2: I'm glad you mentioned that. And for our audience, one of the things I like to do on the show is take phrases that they might hear commonly mentioned here in Washington, but dig just a slightly bit deeper. Qualified immunity, and I'll let you run with it if you want to, essentially is civil protection for police officers and police departments from litigation and Removing that, some people fear would create more accountability. Others would fear it would create too much exposure to police departments. Since you have so much experience in your family, why don't you give us a description of how you see it? Well, I think
1: you summarized it right. Look, you know, the the thing is, you know, when the men and women go out there, a lot of those decisions have to be done on a split second, a split second that they have to make that decision. If they feel that every time they make a decision on a split second... Uh, that they might be uh, hauled over to, to court, then you, know, you would have a, a chilling effect on the work that they do. So we have to uh, find this, uh, you know, we have to cali- calibrate the language in the right way that still provides protection uh, you know, for, for the men and women that are doing their job, especially when they have to do a split uh, uh, second decision. But at the same time, uh, still have people if there is a problem with a police officer where they can uh, go to court if they need to go. So we got to be very careful on police
2: reform. And Congressman Quer, I'm just curious, because your family has so much attachment to this work, what was the conversation in your family about Derek Chauvin and what he did?
1: Well, I mean, basically, you know, the same thing where, you know, I think John and I are on the same uh, basis when we talk about the legal system. There's a lot of good men and women out there. Uh, if there's a bad apple, the legal system has a way of... Uh, uh, finding that justice uh, like they did in this uh, verdict itself. You know, when you put a jury together and uh, you have the, uh, you know, the evidence on both sides, on the uh, prosecutor and the defense, the jury's going to make that decision. And the legal system has a way of, uh, of, of punishing. They usually will get it right. Uh, well, they have to punish a, a bad apple in this, uh, like in this case.
2: And Congressman Kacko, I'm curious, you said that some, constituents or people you encountered were uncertain. A lot of Americans were uncertain what was going to come from this jury. What does that tell you about their level of faith in? Because you said it reaffirmed our justice system. Well, it sounds like those people you were encountering didn't have a lot of faith going in. I'm not sure it was actual reaffirmation. It might have been, oh, wow, it actually worked.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it was, listen, uh, that case sh- uh, shook America to its core. It was a horrific thing to, to, to uh, observe no matter who you were. And so I think it really shook people in that regard. And I don't think people had a, had a sense that the justice would be, uh, would be would have been meted out here, but it has, and that's great. And with respect to the George Floyd bill, um, if it was a perfect bill, if it was a very good bill, uh, we wouldn't be having the discussions that we're having now on, on, an, on an alternative to it. That takes into consideration a lot of the things that Henry's talking about. I think that, that George Floyd bill, it laid down a marker. Uh, But it's it's certainly, I think everyone understood that it wasn't going to go anywhere. And we want to have something that's going to go anywhere that has uh, standards for police that work and has standards for the community that are important. And it looks at uh, the the problem holistically from many different angles, not just uh, whether a cop is a good cop or a bad cop. We got to look at departments. The Minneapolis Police Department was not a well-run department. It did not have the accreditations it should have had, uh, did not have the standards uh, to deal with uh, people with that were repeat offenders uh, and poor, poor performing police officers. A lot of things like that we're going to deal with this bill, and it's going to be a lot better because of it.
2: Very good. That's the voice of Congressman John Kacko, uh, 24th District of New York, Henry Quare, 28th District of Texas, also our guest. I promised a conversation on immigration. That's coming up in segment two. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Back in just a second.
0: This episode. From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. John Katko, uh, Congressman from New York, Republican. Henry Quare, Congressman, Texas, Democrat, working together on immigration. So you have a bill to deal with the migrant surge at the border. So Congressman Quare, what is it that your bill wants to accomplish? And do you believe the Biden White House has a blind spot about this particular situation?
1: Well, I don't think it's only the Biden administration. It's been a lot of administrations in the past because this this proposal uh, that um, uh, John has taken the lead, and I have to say something about John. He's from the northern border. I'm from the southern border. He's a Republican. I'm a Democrat. But we're able to get together and in a thoughtful way uh, put, you know, we're proposing policy that makes sense. Look, FEMA uh, has a fund and has a strategy and a plan where when a hurricane hits, for example, they know what needs to uh, happen. Well, we ought to do the same thing because what we're seeing on the southern border, we've we've seen a surge in 2014, 2019, and of course, 2021. So we have to have uh, funding available to address that issue. uh, Number one, and number two, you got to have a plan on how you address this as a whole of a government approach instead of working in silos. So I have to hand it to uh, my friend, uh, John. Uh, he's been very thoughtful and I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, we intend to make this work one way or the other. I was telling John, there's uh, plan A and plan B. Plan A is the legislation uh, that uh, John and I are working on. And the other uh, uh, process or plan B is to look at the appropriation uh, process, uh, put the, uh, the work into the uh, appropriation. So one way or the other, Uh, We hope to get this
2: done. And I want to let our audience know what Congressman Cuellar is referring to because we have very interesting power dynamics here. Congressman Cuellar is an appropriator. He sits on the Appropriations Committee, which means he has a voice in everything that the Congress will spend. And that makes him relevant in any conversation about spending on homeland security issues. Congressman Katkow is the ranking Republican on the Homeland Security Committee, which authorizes spending, which means it oversees policy. So you have a Republican, ranking Republican, of a committee that oversees policy on homeland security and a member of the Appropriations Committee who has a lot to say about dollars, how they're spent. That's the power dynamic. That's why this is an interesting conversation. Congressman Kakao, what do you believe is missing right now fundamentally in the White House approach to the border surge? And I want to ask you both, has the vice president been placed in charge of this? Is she already late in getting to the border to look at this for herself? Congressman, go ahead.
3: Yeah, well, first of all, um, there was no game plan to to deal with a possible border surge. And Henry's absolutely right. It's not it's not just unique to this this administration. Uh, They've never had a game plan uh, set in place. saying, OK, assume a border surge is going to happen, just like you assume Russia is going to come across the border into Germany someday. And if Russia came across the border into Germany, the military had a game plan set of what they were gonna do. Uh, we have no game plan set for the periodic border surges that happened. We can all argue as to why they happened, or who caused this one. And I would submit that to January 20th, executive orders were the triggering mechanism. Regardless, the bottom line is they did not have a game plan. And we didn't have a game plan in previous administration. So we're saying, have a plan, have measurables in place that, 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 that can uh, make sure that a plan works uh, have triggering mechanisms so when a surge is beginning or a surge is starting, the plan goes into place and then have money set aside that can't be touched by anybody else to use this. Because what's happening now, when people don't realize, Customs and Border Patrol's budget is getting chewed up completely. They're using funds that are used to pay Customs and Border Patrol officers and pay the retirement and all that at the end of the year. And this keeps coming closer and closer to, to the timeline now where they're going to be out of money that's not how you operate in a crisis. You need to be ready for a crisis. And Henry's right. FEMA's got a plan in place for how to deal with hurricanes. Um, we gotta have a plan, a similar plan in place here. And this is what this bill does. Sets up measurable, sets trigger mechanisms, has money set aside. And um, whoever the administration puts in charge of it now uh, is for to deal with this crisis now. We're saying in the future, when this happens again, we need to be better prepared. And I think that's what we're talking
2: about. Has the vice president been uh, in any way asleep at the switch, not going to the border, in your opinion?
3: Um, she hasn't been there. And if you cannot possibly be in charge of this crisis, if you don't go to the border, that you, we can talk about to a blue in the face. But until you stand in the banks and watch people on the other side get ready to cross, until you go into the Donna facility and see 400 kids crammed into a place where they're supposed to be 35, when you see an 11-year-old kid that's pregnant at the border be because of sexual abuse she endured along the way you can't possibly understand all that unless you see it yourself so whoever's in charge of it and if she is in fact in charge uh you, you have to go down there and see it for yourself there's there's no substitute
2: congressman Cuellar, uh your thoughts on the vice president and whether or not uh she has should have already been there or when she should soon get there to see it for herself We
1: well, you know certainly uh- You know, I've invited the uh, vice president and the president go down there to the border so they can see it for for the for themselves Uh, when they will get there. You know, they'll they'll make that appropriate decision. Uh, But I can tell you that it's it's uh, it's something that uh, has to be addressed uh, because it it really affects three different secretaries. Uh, The secretary of state, you know, what foreign aid or assistance that we work to address the root uh, problems that we have down there in Central America. Uh, the Homeland Secretary, which deals with the border, and then the Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services, uh, because, you know, they're in charge of taking care of the kids once they're here in the U.S. So it, it goes across, it cuts across three different agencies, and the Vice President is supposed to be, you know, the leader on this uh, aspect. So we uh, we hope to work with her. We uh, certainly uh, want to work with the administration Uh, you know to me it doesn't matter if it's a democrat republican president i am a democrat so but i i do want to have that president wherever the president is we want to have that person successful because if they succeed then we succeed as a country so uh, I think both John and I want to be as helpful as we can to the administration.
2: Do you believe, as your colleague just said, that the executive orders set this in motion? Well, you know, you have to look at the push factors
1: and the pull factors. There are push factors, so there is pull factors. Uh, Democrats usually talk about the push factors, the poverty, the crime, uh, the climate change of those countries. Demo- uh, those are Democrats. Republicans usually talk about the pull factors, you know, what policies you have to pull people over here. In my opinion, I think we, you need to address both of them. Uh, and if you look at it, Title 42, which is not a Trump policy, but it's actually a 1944 yep. law. Yep. That's the uh, public health that allows us to return people back. Uh, most of the people, adults, are being returned under Title 42. Yes, uh, they are. In fact, uh, some of the family units, unless if they're age six or seven, and depending on what Mexico wants to do, uh, they're being returned under Title 42. So. It's not really an elimination of some of those policies. Uh, You know, there's been a pause on um, remaining in Mexico. I think that's something that we can repurpose, uh, Well, we can even bring the UN uh, of refugees, the the High Commissioner of Refugees to address uh, their stay over there. I think the agreements with those countries should not be eliminated, but they should be repurposed. And I think they're talking about doing agreements Uh, So it's it's in my opinion, we got to look at the push factors and the pull factors together.
2: And as you said, Congressman, and I want to underscore this for our audience, and if you're really deeply interested in this topic, uh, go to my other podcast, The Debrief. About three or four weeks ago, we did an entire deep dive on children at our border, which will really explain all of the underlying issues here. But one of the things you mentioned, Congressman Cuellar, the Biden administration hasn't changed all that much. Only unaccompanied children now are allowed to be reviewed for an asylum claim. That's why they're in temporarily in border patrol and customs custody then being transferred to HHS facilities. As of April 19th, we're recording this on April 21st, there were 2,491 children in CBP custody, 20,468 in Health and Human Services care. These are unaccompanied children going through the system. And the block blockage was if they go to Border Patrol under federal law, they can only be there for 72 hours. Well, if you don't have facilities that HHS is monitoring and running, they have to stay somewhere, and that somewhere is in the custody of Customs and Border Patrol, and that's the problem that the the management problem essentially the Biden administration is dealing with. But it didn't change the policy for uh, for adults seeking asylum or families, and there is a remain in Mexico component part to it. But really. The one thing it did was say if you're an unaccompanied child, we'll let you in to review your asylum claim. That's the big change, and that's what has been a pull factor. More of our conversation. Uh, let Let me go to break. Congressman, I'll be right back. I'm Major Garrett. Segment three of The Takeout coming up in just a second.
0: CBS News. This is the Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Uh, Congressman Quare, you were going to jump in. Forgive me. I just had to go to break. Uh, Jump in with your thought.
1: Yeah. And and then I'll let John, uh, because John is very familiar with this also. You you know, actually, the the law that you're referring to is a 1998 law that talks about human trafficking, where the uh, juveniles or the kids from contiguous countries, which Mm is Mexico and Canada, are treated very differently. The whole world is is definitely treated differently, which in this case, we're talking about Central America uh, kids coming in. Somebody just uh, figured this out some years ago that if you bring a child from one of the non-contiguous country outside of Mexico, in this case, Central America, uh, the kids can come in and then they're brought in uh, and it's a different process. If you're an adult, then with a child, then you also will be released and treated differently. The bottom line is, and I know Democrats don't want to change this, but I will remind Democrats, President uh, Obama, uh, Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton, Homeland Secretary Johnson and myself, there were some other Democrats, but everybody dropped off. We felt that that 1998 law ought to be changed. If we make that change, this flow of people coming in would change completely. People can still have their asylum, their credible fear, but as long as you treat everybody else different from the way we treat Mexico and Canada, you're going to continue having this flow for years and years. It's the 1998 human trafficking law that has changed the dynamics uh, of what we're seeing now. John, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean,
3: I, I have a little different take on it. Uh, the the uh, triggering mechanisms for this surge. Uh, the bottom line is uh, they, they eliminate the remain in Mexico policy, uh, the Biden administration, and they said they signaled to, to individuals, that if you come across the border as an unaccompanied child, then you'll be allowed to stay here. Um, but the cartels did, and the cartels control the entire border. You cannot cross without paying them at least $4,000 per, per body. And I know this because I prosecuted cartels in El Paso, Texas in my career. So I know um, they're advertising this, they're stoking this. So those policies created the market, if you will. And the market is, they're being marketed on TikTok and on Facebook and, and even Craigslist to come across the border. So now now I can tell you, not just children are being allowed to stay here. If you're a parent with an adult, with a child, uh, you're allowed to stay. A lot of times they're not making them go back. And I know this, because I I encountered some people at midnight on the border, the next day at nine o'clock in the morning, they were on a flight with some of my colleagues to Dallas Fort Worth, and they were were here illegally. So it's much more than just unaccompanied children coming to the border. And it's a much greater thing. What happened was on January 20th, that was a triggering mechanism I agree with Henry and all the other economic issues, but um, the, the, the thing that caused a surge and every single agent I've talked about on the border is told the same thing is what happened on January 20th. No question about it.
2: Explain, explain to my audience who may not know, John, what Remain in Mexico policy was and how it changed.
3: If you claim asylum and at the southern border, that was what everyone was doing. They're coming here claiming asylum, seeking asylum from wherever they were. Um, the the, the, the uh, Trump administration said, okay, fine, to deal with the surge, we had to deal with it before you're gonna get your asylum case heard, but you're gonna wait in Mexico until it's heard. So you're gonna wait across the border. That slowed the illegal immigration significantly because the incentive was there to come and just claim asylum. And don't forget about 90% of asylum cases are ultimately dismissed or denied and people are ordered to to be removed. The problem is we have a gigantic backlog in asylum cases that will take years to catch up. So someone comes across the border, claims asylum, they're paroled into the country, 90, uh, a very large percentage them never even show up to a hearing. And now there's such a problem at the border that they're releasing people into the country and they're not even giving them a date for their, for, for their asylum cases or hearings. They're just telling them report at a later date. They're just kind of getting them out into the community as quickly as they can to try and relieve the pressure at the border. And it's really a
2: mess. Congressman John, do you believe that most uh, either families or children who show up in this process pose a threat to the United States? No,
3: but there is there is certainly that element. And there's certainly been individuals on a terror watch list that have been stopped at the border. Uh, the Chinese smuggling is part of this. You have people, the Chinese are paying fifty to $70,000 for a person to smuggle them across. You have Yemenis, you have Eastern Europeans, you have uh, people from uh, terrorist hotbed countries. So there's always that danger. And the more porous the border gets, the more that danger increases. But here, here's the problem. And if I was a parent and I had kids and I lived in Guatemala, you're damn right I'd try and sneak into the United States, right? I understand that. But there's a right way to do it in a wrong way. If we secure the border and then work with those countries to try and help their economic situation, and certainly doesn't mean giving money to their leaders. It's going there and helping them. Like I used to go and train prosecutors in those countries how to go after the cartels. And so I, you know, and it was a very, that was an added, uh, just huge value for them. We've got we to do things like that, going to those countries. I'd like to see the Secretary of State spend as much time in Central America as they do in the Middle East. And helping those countries and helping them and understanding their problems and understanding how we can really help them. Because until you we have to secure the border for our nation's sake, because no country would put up with what's going on at our border. But we also have to help those Central American countries get on their feet economically and do what we can to help that.
2: And, John, as you well know, a lot of Trump supporters think securing the border means building a wall. You disagree, right? Well, I, I think the wall
3: has its place in that it helps the drug trade. That's the thing we haven't talked about uh, in the Rio Grande Valley alone, the Rio Grande Valley sector. 2,000 percent increase in, in fentanyl seizures this year because what's happening is 40 to 50 percent of the border patrol agents who normally patrol the border are being pulled off to deal with this crisis. Now the border, they, the cartels are smart enough to know if I send 100 kids over here, uh, all these agents gonna have to come off the border to deal with them if they all go across at once. So then we'll just go where they left and bring the drugs across. So the drugs are coming across too. So the, they're, they're they're telling me that the barrier really does help with uh, drug trafficking and human trafficking. Uh, but let's not forget, the two are intertwined, and in, in the, in the, uh, the, the the drug cartel is really playing us like a fiddle right now.
2: Henry, your thoughts on a border wall? I know you clashed with the Trump administration over this. You've called it a 14th century solution to a 21st century problem. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is a 14th century solution to a 21st century problem. Look, let's look at the facts. If you look at the facts, most drugs, fentanyl, cocaine, will come through ports of entry, not in between ports. Uh, but through ports of entry, those are the On official trucks, numbers right? that we have. Uh, that's correct. And if you want to stop people, keep in mind that in the last seven years, sixty-three percent of the people here illegally came through visa overstays, and the number one violator was Canada. Now I'm not pushing for a wall between New York and Canada, but that's the, what the numbers are. Uh, and keep in mind that the wall uh, along the Texas, we have the uh, uh, Rio Grande is usually built about half a mile away from the river uh, banks because we understand it, you don't want it to be washed away. So even these people that we're talking about right now, they're not trying to evade. They actually will walk from the river bank, uh, go half a, half a mile, and I'm sure that John saw that the, that the fence is not at the river banks. They walk up, turn themselves into border patrol. Now, that, that's the families and the unaccompanied kids Now, there are some people trying to evade. Those are the single adults. uh, And that, you know, is something else. And keep in mind, Border Patrol, uh, pre-2012, the Border Patrol Union before uh, 2012 was against the wall. They called it the uh, waste of taxpayers' dollars. Uh, After 2012, a new um, union leadership came in. And of course, now they support the wall. Uh, But but again, you know, I'm a big believer in uh, private property rights. And if you own land and if you had it for a generation, the last thing you want is big government to come over and take over your property. Technology, personnel, working with the countries uh, to secure the border.
2: And Henry, tell my audience a little bit about your experience in Laredo, because as I understand it, 20,000 trucks as of 2017 were crossing the border every single day. And the Laredo sector is the the Custom District is the second busiest in the country, right behind Los Angeles.
1: That, that is great. Uh, Little Town of Laredo, uh, 260,000. We're number one in trucks. We're number one in trains. We're number one in buses. Sounds like a movie. Uh, so, um, you know, we get about 16,000. Well, actually, now it's 17,000 traders a day. Uh, we're number one in trains, about 24 trains a day plus. Uh, so trade is important. And sometimes we're number one, but we're usually number two after LA in total trade. Now, John mentioned something that was that's absolutely correct. The criminal organizations control what comes in. If you look at the do Rio sector north of Laredo, you will see that Cubans, Haitians, and people from Venezuela and other folks come in uh, through that sector. In the Laredo sector, over 90% of the crossings are single male adults from Mexico. You go down to the, the uh, uh, Rio Grande sector, yes you get Mexicans uh, also, but you get family units and single, uh, single, uh, you know, the unaccompanied kids. So the organizations control where people go in because you know the average is six to eight thousand dollars. Uh, and and if you multiply eight thousand dollars uh, times one hundred seventy-two. That's a lot of money.
2: Right, and as a result, they apply pressure differently on different parts of the U.S.-Mexico border. Our conversation about immigration, a bipartisan conversation, unusual here in Washington, will continue. by major Garrett, you're listening to the Takeout. Back for segment four in just a second.
0: The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. cbs news this is the takeout
2: with major garrett welcome back i'm major garrett yes forgive the informality but i'm just calling them henry and john uh john uh please continue you had a thought you wanted to jump in on
0: sure
3: yeah you know i understand henry's arguments on the, on the why the wall you know the vast majority of drugs come through the port of entries that's true but uh here, here's a here's a fact and i know this because i went after the cartels and, and and every time we put pressure on the ports of entry they would go around and go go into the wilderness and go around where walls weren't, weren't there. And now, at the ports of entries, they have uh, uh, machines that are so good at detecting drugs and vehicles, it's incredible. They they x ray vehicles as you're driving through, the x rays, trucks, x ray trucks as you're going through. And there's a lot more uh, technology that makes it more difficult and more dangerous at the ports of entry. So, uh, anytime they sense that there, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, a heavy presence at the ports of entry; they simply go around. So that's what that's what the, my the agents are saying. Uh, they're 100 supportive of the barriers because the barriers do help in the overall matrix of trying to stop this stuff coming to our country.
2: John and Henry, I want to ask you both a, a broader question. Um, as you both witnessed, the Biden administration struggled for the early weeks. It never wanted to call this a crisis. It has now sort of come around to it, but you could feel it in the interactions with. The nominees for cabinet positions, then once they became cabinet secretaries at the White House briefings, there was this tremendous resistance to call this a crisis. What does that tell you about the White House orientation to this? What are the conversations in the cloakrooms that you occupy? Because Democrats will say, John, Republicans just want to pounce on this issue. They don't want to create a solution. They just want to make a political score. And Henry, there'll be those who say Democrats don't want to acknowledge facts because they're uncomfortable with them. I'd like to ask you both your real life experience within your own parties on this issue.
3: I think what you just said is true of both of us. Absolutely. There's no question both of our parties is true. If I was Biden, the last thing I would do is call it a crisis early in his administration because then uh, people can try and, hang and have him own that crisis. And quite frankly, it, it, I, I do think he helped cause it. But at the same time, I think too many people on my side are trying to exploit it instead of trying to find a solution. And that's where Henry and I step in. Uh, I don't think Henry gives a crap about all this and, and I don't that much either. I care more about a solution and the solution is this bill we're talking about. And that's why we're doing it because we're like, okay, we can talk about whose fault it is, but let everybody else have fun with that. I want to I find a solution if Henry, Henry wants to find a solution. And that's why we're here. And that's that simple as far as I'm concerned.
1: Henry? Uh, John is absolutely right. I mean, uh, look, we, we got a problem. We got to find a practical solution to a real problem that we have. You know, this, uh, um, you know, I, I'm a Democrat, as you know, and uh, back in December, I think it was on December 11th, I was giving interviews about what was happening and I was getting briefings, you know, because I sit as the vice chair of uh, the uh, Homeland uh, Subcommittee on Appropriation. So I was getting briefings about what was happening, the, you know, the, the criminal organizations were already staging, they were getting ready. They started their messaging uh, uh, campaign already. saying Even before hey, inauguration be day. Even
2: before inauguration day.
1: Well before. Even before. And if you look at the numbers, September, October, November, December, January, at least to January twentieth. But all those day, uh, those numbers, they were increasing even before uh, inauguration day. Now I know that in February it went up, and then certainly in March, you know, we broke records, one hundred seventy-two thousand. And keep in mind that. March, April, May, June are the peak months, not seasonal, yeah. but peak months. So, you know, we've been trying to tell the administration, but I can understand the administration wanted to concentrate on the relief package, on vaccinations, you know, things are important, trying to get the economy back. But at the same time, we at the border communities, We see this every day. We don't just come and visit. We see this. And I was hearing from my mayors, judges, NGOs that there was a problem back last year.
2: And Congressman Cuellar, Henry, you've had a situation politically this way. You were challenged in your own party from the left, from the progressive left, saying you were wrong on these issues. You were too hostile. You prevailed. But you've you've lived this political life, this tension within your party about what this issue is, what it isn't, and how to talk about it. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's certainly, I mean, you know, people, you know, I was the number one target for this group that spent over $5 million against me. And basically their position was, uh, you know, positions that I I don't think were right for our our country. Open borders. I do not want to see open borders. My father was born in Guerrero, Tamaulipas. He became a legal resident. And then a naturalized citizen, they, you know, he followed the process. He waited a long time. There are a lot of people down there, Hispanics or Mexican-Americans, that see what's going on and they see people come Central America jump the line. They don't like that. So we want to make sure that people come in the right way.
2: Before I let you go on that point, Henry, uh, there was a surprising, uh, at least to the punditocracy, which I do not include myself in, that Hispanic males and even some Hispanic females gravitated toward Trump in 2020. Did that surprise you?
1: Well, you know, you know, Trump was able to address two issues. I know this because I traveled my district two days after the November election. It was defund the police uh, and it was oil and gas. Uh, And those, you know, those are the issues. Issues uh, about guns Uh, in South Texas. It's not not you own a gun. The question is how many guns do you own. And and, and in rural Texas, it doesn't matter if you're Hispanic or non-Hispanic. Those are the issues that are important, and President Trump was able to focus on, on those issues, and um, you know he made headway. I'll say this: it's not a political realignment because Democrats like myself and other folks won, but President Trump was able to hit. Uh, some points that uh, resonated with voters down
2: there. And just so my audience knows, John, you were one of 10 who voted to impeach President Trump the second time. You said he did incite the January 6th insurrection. You've clashed with your party on this and other issues and the White House. Um, Before we wrap this up in about a minute 30 or so, you've got this idea. You've got this legislation. You've said your own party tries to exploit this issue. How realistic is this bipartisan solution And what in the coming weeks are you going to do to get it across the finish line or get it nearer to that finish line?
3: I know we've struck a chord there um, uh, because uh, from what I understand in the Senate, and I think Henry may or may not know this, uh, the senators are basically fighting over who's going to sponsor the bill in the Senate. And that's a good sign. So I think people understand that we're going to have this this, uh, politicizing of every event like we always do. But when you have practical solutions like this, people listen to them. And you know what? I spent my whole time in Congress trying to be bipartisan, be have practical solutions. I don't even introduce a bill unless I have a Democratic co-sponsor on it first. And that's that's how I get things done. And what we're doing today is showing that, you know, we, you, you can lead just by doing, putting your mind where your mouth is being bipartisan. And Henry does it every day. He's a great partner. I do it every day, and I, I, uh, I'm proud of that. And I, that's why when my, my far right's mad at me, uh, I, I have to deal
2: with it. Before I let you two go, there was a vote recently this week on Maxine Waters. I don't want to talk about that, but I want to talk about the danger you might see in both parties wanting to censure each other for things said as members of Congress. Are you worried about that trend, John?
3: I am. Uh, listen, we've had to take a lot of votes already and I voted to censure someone in my own party. But I think it's becoming too, too commonplace. And I think that um, we've got to get back to governing. People are so sick of all this infighting and sniping. And I think people just want to see things getting done. And, and, and that's what Tony and I are trying to do. That's what we're trying to do with infrastructure. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. But I totally agree with you that it's not that productive to do all that.
2: Henry, your thoughts? I'll give you the last word. What happened in
1: civility when people disagreed? Right. And I think what John and I are doing here today is to actually uh, work together and get the job done. I, you know, John is right. People are tired of this fighting between Democrats and Republicans. What they want is they, you know, there's not a Republican or Democratic uh, solution out there. They just One is to get the job done uh, for the American people. So I want to thank John for his uh, leadership.
2: That's the voice of Henry Cuellar, Congressman, 28th District, Texas, Democrat. The other voice you heard, John Katkow, Republican, 24th District of New York. For our radio audience, we've got to say farewell. For podcast CBSN, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Takeout with Major Garrett. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout
0: Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Two guests this week, they work together. One is a Republican, one is a Democrat. How odd is that? Well, it's actually not as odd as media narratives suggest, but it's odd enough to be of interest to me, particularly on an issue of immigration. We had a long conversation about that. John Katkow, Republican from the 24th District of New York, and Henry Cuellar, 20th District, Texas. He's a Democrat. So, gentlemen, I want you to have lots of time for this because we have three threshold questions. We ask every single guest on this show, and I want to make sure you both have adequate time to consider your answers. So here are the three questions, and, uh, John, you'll go first because I get to decide. Um <laughs> Most influential book in your life, meaning one that you read and you became a different or changed person as a result of reading that book? All-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? You're flying back to beautiful Syracuse, or you're driving somewhere in magnificent upstate New York, and you want to listen to some great music. What kind of artist or genre are you most likely to listen to?
3: Okay, well, my, the book that's probably most influential for me was, I can't believe I'm going to say this because it's written by Chris Matthews, <laughs> but it was called Tipping the Gipper. Uh, <laughs> And just the relationship between Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, and they were diametrically opposed politically, but they managed to get some incredible things done together. And uh, tax reform, social security reform, tax cuts, and uh, immigration reform. Try and do that now, right? So that's a very influential book. Uh, My favorite movie, Uh, I like comedies, but uh, uh, so... I'm just gonna say it. I can't help it. I like to laugh. My job's tense enough. I love Dumb and Dumber. It's, I just think it's incredible. It makes you laugh.
2: And <laughs> you just light up. It has been mentioned fun. on this program before. It has been mentioned, not often, but it has been mentioned.
3: <laughs> Dude, I, there's so much. He, it's, uh, laughter is the best medicine. My mother's Irish, and she so just laughs. So that makes me laugh. And uh, what was the third question again? I'm sorry. Yeah,
2: Favorite, uh, music. You're gonna enjoy uh, a long drive uh, or a long flight, and listen to some music. Uh, artist or genre?
3: I. I uh, I, I love classic rock and I love the Beatles. I, I have older sisters growing up, so I was, I was born in 62, but I must have been listening to Beatles from the crib because I've, uh, I love them and I love classic rock and I love Z C Top and I love country. So anything that's got a good beat, I'm all good.
2: Excellent. Henry, you're up. Uh, the Bible, uh, what a
1: wonderful world. Uh, even though I'm a I'm a Trekkie, I love all the original Star Trek uh, movies. Uh, so uh, peace and prosper with y'all. Uh,
2: <laughs> and and, and the, uh, it's, oh, and because it, because there are like 17 <laughs> variations of the TV show, are you a fan no, of the know, Jean, the Gene Roddenberry, the original?
1: I like the uh, I like the uh, the uh, definitely the uh, original
2: itself on that. So. That's, okay. like, that's and why that's why Henry
3: has five degrees and I don't. I only have
1: two.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're gonna get into that in a second. We're gonna get into that in a second. What?
1: Well, you know, you know, definitely on the on the music, I, I just love the sixties and seventies. Also, I mean, I just love it. I can just go on from you know, like you mentioned, the Beatles to uh, you know, uh, Three Dog Night. I mean, just name it. All the uh, the sixties and the seventies. My girls, I got two daughters, Chrissy and Katie, and they. You know, every time they get on the uh, on the car with me, they know what I'm gonna be playing.
2: <laughs> so, uh, Henry, uh, it has been said, and I think you have said it. You are the most degreed member of the House of Representatives. Is that still true? I, I don't know. You know, I'm
1: sure John has probably surpassed me already. But i have got tell five, right? Education, uh, yes, sir. Yes, two sir. two bachelors, a master,
2: um, a a law degree, and a PhD. Correct.
1: Yeah, that is correct. I was working on a uh, MD, but I was told that I have to be there full time, so that doesn't work uh, as a member of Congress. So that's, uh, that's been put on hold for right now. Uh, But, you know, let me tell you what, why it's so important, just real quickly. uh, My father and my mother uh, were migrant workers. Uh, They only knew a few words in English. uh, And I understand uh, it. Your father
2: traveled as far north to Idaho for work. Is that true?
1: That that is correct. And uh, they were both migrant workers. I'm the oldest of eight kids. Uh, My parents told me two things. The importance of education since we're not able to get it, and uh, and working hard. Uh, so I learned those two uh, two uh, lessons, and I certainly took the education to uh, to the uh, highest level that I could.
2: How many degrees do you have, John?
3: <laughs> oh my God, I feel so small. I only have two. But I graduated and I got the degrees. For me, that's a colossal achievement. But, uh, what, exactly, you, what, exactly. One thing about Henry, though, is. He's one of the most humble guys in Congress. and That's what's nice about him. He, he's the uh, uh, antithesis of, of arrogance. He, he is just a, 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 a really good guy and a fascinating guy. And that's a remarkable
2: achievement to have five
3: degrees. I salute you.
2: So, John, before I let you go, uh, I'm a big fan of the Almanac of American politics. I've been all my career. And when you read about your district, you read this nice, interesting note. Syracuse is the home of many practical inventions. The dental chair. The drive in bank teller. Now, there are those in my audience too young to don't even understand what you would need a bank teller for, drive in or otherwise, but I'll set that aside. <laughs> and the serrated knife. What is it about Syracuse and these practical inventions?
3: Because the winners are so damn so long, you get so damn bored, you got to start thinking creative, so don't go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, and on top of that, uh, Syracuse uh, used to beat by uh, undergrad Georgetown. So you got a pretty good basketball. You used to have a right to basketball that. team, also. That's right.
2: And uh, and case in case anyone out there is wondering, the Carrier Dome, in which the Syracuse Orange play basketball and football, is the largest indoor stadium on any college campus in America. That's why you mm-hmm. come here, ladies and gentlemen, for meaningless trivia from a guy like me, Major <laughs> Garrett, Henry Quare, John Katkow, It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me, everyone. We'll see you next week.